So we turn again to the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 7, and we're going to look at uh, four or five verses tonight, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Romans chapter 7 and verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Well, here are some wonderfully fascinating words of the Apostle Paul. And they tell us something about human psychology. And they tell us what makes us tick as fallen men and women, how we operate in God's world. And they tell us how we are delivered from our bondage to sin and brought into liberty. What processes God uses, what wheels of redemption he sets into motion that uh, deliver us. They tell us that the natural man, uh, unbelievers, uh, they live in continual tension. There's the larger picture which we've looked at as we've gone through this letter. We human beings, Paul has told us, are confronted with the glory and power and the Godhead of God day and night. And the natural man's response to that sight is to clamp down on it and to deafen his ears to that voice. We turn away. We won't say this is God's world, this is God's glory, this is God's power I'm looking at as the sun sets over the bay and the starlings move around in their aerobatics. We ignore. We will not have this God of creation as our God. We set up no pattern of of activity to know him for ourselves. We refuse to recognize that we are his creatures and the heavens are declaring to us, are preaching to us, his glory. As though God had the universe as his pulpit and he was telling us how mighty and glorious he is. Still, God won't let them go. They come to admire uh, a beautiful valley, uh, a mountain. The Alps, they go on foreign holidays and they're overwhelmed with what they see. And God gives them a sunset touch, as Browning says. They're troubled. But then each of us as uh, God's creatures also has the voice of conscience judging us, warning us, rebuking us, also commending us when... We do something self-denying for the service of others. And that voice is saying, this glorious God of creation, whose power and majesty are seen all around us, is also a moral God, a moral being, that he is light in him, is no darkness of sin at all. He is holy, holy, holy. He's a God who hates 
what is disgusting and vile and mean and cruel and tawdry. And men and women are living daily in defiance then of that revelation of God that they can't escape from because it's part of their being made in God's image. Unlike the animals and the reptiles and the snakes and the birds and the fish that have no such conscience about how they act. All of us have the things of the law written in our minds. And then, of course, there's more than that for so many people, especially those that live in Wales, where there has been the revelation of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ for 1900 years. Um, People have some exposure to that. They've seen a text outside the chapel here. Their parents, their grandparents went to church and had some knowledge of experiential religion. They've heard the Bible read in morning assemblies. Uh, They had a Christian teacher who prayed in the classroom. Uh, They went to church for a while and God has his ways of speaking to them in a particular way, nudging them in their ribs and awakening them. This last Thursday was the uh, 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo when the Duke of Wellington defeated Napoleon. And this official service then of commemoration was held in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, where um, the Duke of Wellington is buried. And the Prince of Wales was there as the leading member of the royal family and the nobility of the land, and all the, the leaders of the armed forces were gathered there. It was a full church. Well, what happened when the good and the great were there in West in St. Paul's Cathedral. Well, they were called upon to worship God. They sang a metrical song. All people that on earth do dwell sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. They also sang, Thou whose almighty word chaos and darkness heard and took their flight, hear us, we humbly pray, that where the gospel ray sheds not its glorious day, let there be light. They sang, ye holy angels bright, who wait at God's right hand. And then the choir sang some verses from Psalm 119. And then uh, um, a descendant of the Duke of Wellington, he read from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Then there was a sermon. The Battle of Waterloo wasn't celebrated by a fireworks display with the arboo to the French because we beat Napoleon. That was not the message at all. That we were lucky and that life has no meaning. That was not the message. All the past events 200 years ago was under the authority of the God of heaven. All the past events of your life that's brought you here tonight They've been under the God of heaven year after year. The way you came, the way you were drawn, the way your eyes were opened and your ears unstopped and your heart quickened and faith was given to you. Your life until now has not been the story of meaninglessness. Your life isn't under the control of the devil or you wouldn't be here tonight. But it's under the control of the God of history, the God of your history. 
the God who reigns. And that is why we gather here tonight. We, we, we come to hear more of him. Tell us more of God and how he deals with us men and women. So here are people, they're not repenting. They're not in church today. They're not believing in Christ. They're living lives that are defying the God who made them. But he speaks to them. And sometimes, not just in creation, in its glory, or in conscience. They see a verse. They go to a service and they hear the word of God. They sing a hymn. All people that on earth dwell sing to the Lord. Sing to him with a cheerful voice. Now Paul, in this passage, is telling us what, in addition, God does when he draws near people like that. Decent people, sinning people, unbelieving people. What God does when he draws near to them. How God operates to change them. And to make them real Christians. The steps God takes. And the first thing I want you to see is that the spirit of sin in men's lives, it creates all kinds of Evil desires. When it hears and is confronted by the commandments of God. It's a bit complicated, but I'll explain that to you quite simply. This is what any one of the commandments of God. God has ten swords that he can use to cut us open. Sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire, he says in verse 8. This is my experience, and I'm typical. Of any man coming under, under conviction. You know, we human beings are so perverse that sometimes to get somebody to do something we need to tell them what they don't want to do. It's called negative psychology. Uh, Parents use it all the time. It can work with their children 80% of the time. Little boy stamps his foot and he says, he doesn't want to go to church. I don't want to go to church. His parents say, church is only for grown-up boys. It's only for mature boys, not for little boys. Boy says, I want to come to church. He says, I'm not staying home. And that's one of the uses of the law of God. It works that way. God says, don't. And he says, it's for our good. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Don't. And when we hear those don'ts from God, there's something in us that says, I'll do it. Do. I'll do it. Do. Or when men hear God saying, do this. Do it. Do it. There's something in the natural man because of remaining sin that says, I won't. I won't. I won't. I refuse. 
There is something within us that makes us fight against anybody who feels that they can tell us what we are to do or what we are not to do. And that spirit reflects the bondage to sin, the bias to sin, the camber that's in our walk through life that just takes us into the ditch all the time, the bent in our nature, the battle that we have with sin that's inside us. We see a sign on a fence that says wet paint and don't touch and normal people then look around. There's no one uh, at all looking and so they touch the fence with a finger. Yes, it's wet. And then they try to get, get into a, a, uh, their pocket without getting paint on their trousers to wipe it off. You had to touch it. It said, don't touch. The paint is wet. There's a sign. It says, no fly tipping here. And the man in the white van, he stops right in front of the the sign, and he takes his rubbish out from the back of his white van and he dumps it there, and on he, he drives. Motorway says, special limitations now, 50 miles an hour. You can't find anybody on that stretch of motorway that's going at 50 miles an hour. And you say to yourself, well, it's, uh, it's safe for me to go with the flow, so we all go at 58. The, fine, the sign said 50. We know that we shouldn't throw rocks through shop windows. Why is there no notice in the Christian bookshop saying, don't throw stones through these windows? Because it's actually happened a number of times. Well, because there wouldn't be a single window unbroken in a month if we put up that sign. It would be a provocative sign for some people. There's something in us that if we say, if we see, do it, say, why should I do it? Or if you see a sign saying, don't do it, we want to do it. And this is what Paul is saying here. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. There's nothing new about this. Augustine, uh, 1500 years ago in Hippo in North Africa, uh, writing his confessions, uh, records... uh, what happened when he was a teenager? There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast on ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we had just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. That's what Augustine writes in his confessions, that his desire to steal was simply awakened by the fact that he knew there was a law that said, thou shalt not steal. And things haven't changed in 1,500 years, have they? You pick the pears not to eat them, but to throw them away. Not because you need pears. But you want to show that you don't follow dumb rules. 
that you are bigger, a bigger man than to be restrained by rules that tell you this and that. We've all um, seen men being interviewed. And they've done some heinous crime. And they're asked, why did you do it? And they say, because I could. That's the power of sin. It seizes any opportunity afforded by a pear tree. The Roman Catholic Church in Ireland discovered this just two weeks ago. After all its instruction about what marriage is, and the people voted. Roman Catholics in their tens of thousands voted that marriage was a relationship between two men and two women, as well as between a man and a woman. The more then they heard, don't, the more defiant they were. The prohibition stirred within them a covetous desire to defy it. So that's one example of what God's law does to the natural man. Second thing I want to say to you is that the spirit of sin in your life springs to life when it meets God's prohibitions. You shall not. The spirit of sin is awakened when the law of God comes and speaks to you. That's what Paul says in verse 9. It sprang to life, he says. It, it was playing possum. The spirit of sin in him. Like it wants to. Like the woman I met and, uh, in the hospital. and uh, She said, I want to die. And I said to her, well, if, you, if you're going to die, you want to pray to God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, I'm not a sinner, she said. I'm not a sinner. Sin didn't want her to be conscious of her sin. What brought remaining sin to life in her it was as the law of God came and said, do not. Do not drink more than two units of alcohol a day. Do not smoke as it is bad for your health. Do not take your dog on this beach. Do not use your mobile phone when you're driving the car. And sinful resentment. Why, you say? Those are utterly irrational. I can handle more than two units of drink. I can drive and speak on the phone at the same time. Sin sprang to life. Um, It's a military term. It refers to Uh, People waiting in ambush. The SAS is hidden in an ambush. Their faces are dark and they are covered and they're muffled and they're speaking quietly to one another on walkie-talkies or however they communicate. And they're waiting for the moment and then they strike without warning and capture the enemy. Saul says, Paul says, when I saw the law, When I saw the law, when I could really see what the law was saying, God's law, I could see what it was saying to me. Boom! Suddenly sin that was already within me, it sprang up and ambushed me. And suddenly I heard, 
one of the laws of God saying, Thou shalt not covet. And it was all up then because that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to covet. I looked at my neighbor's car in a different way. I looked at my fellow student's lightweight laptop in a new way. I looked at a fellow preacher's suit. I looked at my buddy's girlfriend. I wanted them. I wanted them. I must have them. Why couldn't I have what they had? The law said, be content with what you have. Don't covet. But now coveting was all I wanted to do. The law said, don't. And I realized what it required of me. I couldn't stop because there was a sinful, a sinful desire that just shot up like a geezer. Shoots up. It was so powerful. I ached and I itched and I longed for and I dreamed about what I didn't have. Everyone around seemed to have it, but I didn't. The law, thou shalt not covet, caused in me an ache, a cry in my heart for what was forbidden. Thirdly, Paul says, apart from the law, sin was dead. But with the law, I was dead. Apart from the law, sin was dead. With the law, I was dead. That's what Paul is. He's speaking about himself. Uh, This was his experience. He does this not because he is special or unique. But he says it like this. Because he is typical of all of us. He's Mr. Everyman. On the journey, Mr. Being Converted Man, when he says this. Um, When he moved from ignorance and alienation from God to becoming a child of God. So this is what he says in verses 8 to 9. Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So he is comparing his life before God began to work in his heart and soul to what his life was like after he became a Christian, after the Holy Spirit set to work in the depths of his soul and really laid on him the commandments of God. That's what the Holy Spirit used. Uh, Before the Damascus Road experience, well, Paul was bursting with natural vitality and self-satisfaction and an overgrown ego. He read the Ten Commandments, he ticked them all off and he said, done them all, blameless. God really loves me for my high standards. God knows my name and he likes me. And then God put the Tenth Commandment in a bow and he shot it twang right into the heart of Paul. The commandment said, Thou shalt not covet, Paul. And Paul was smitten by it. He realized that he he coveted his neighbor's beautiful wife, his lovely house, his vineyard, his horses, his brains, his library, his good health, his easy, pleasant manner. And that was just one neighbor whose possessions he coveted. And everywhere, when he went down the street and when he saw old friends, and he was coveting everything. 
that they, they all had. There was scarcely a person that he worked with and knew who didn't have things that Paul coveted. Once he realized coveting was a sin and tried to stop it, well, his coveting took off in a booster rocket that went up and up and up and up. And uh, he found he could covet for Jerusalem. He could covet for the whole Jewish race. He was a champion coveter. Every kind of covetous desire was there. That's what he confesses. Every kind. Verse 8. That's what he says. He coveted when he walked the street. He coveted when he lay awake at bed at night. He coveted round the clock. And this great vision of himself then as an upright and law-abiding and righteous man that God loved withered and died once he'd been alive because he didn't discover what the law of God was saying. And now it searched him. It searched his motives. It searched the wellsprings of his life. It looked into his heart. And it showed Paul that he was a sinner. Just like the beggar. Just like the Pharisee. Just like the publican. The commandment came to him. And sin that had been lying dormant. Sin that had been um, playing possum. uh, Like the possum pretends to be dead. Sin was pretending to be dead in, in Paul's life. It was lying there in a sealed coffin, moribund, senseless, unmoving. It didn't want to draw attention to itself and the secret power and influence that it had in Saul's life. It wanted Saul to go on stroking his affections. It wanted Saul to go on thinking much about himself, that he was... He was simply the best, better than the rest. And so God disturbed that slumber and he shot the tenth commandment into his heart. And suddenly the coffin door was open and out sprang sin, alive, looking, furtive, golem, energetic, saw the self-conscious God-like man was no more. Sin was alive and Saul was dead. He discovered that sin wasn't put to death in his life. He wasn't dead at all. Sin was very much alive in his heart and life. And it was Saul who now realized he was dead. Saul was dead as mutton. He was inwardly dead. Saul was a sinner. So Saul minus the law equaled life. Saul plus the law equaled death. Fourth thing that he says in this fascinating section is a commandment intending to bring life brought to death. So he says, verse 10, I found, he said, I, I came across this. I made this great discovery. Like a man digs a hole in the field and he discovers treasure. Paul found treasure. And this is a strange treasure he found. That the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. You understand what he's saying here? Right up to the Damascus Road. Paul thought, wonderful thing, the law of God. Law of God who tells you, the law of God tells you how you should live. That's what it's there for. The Ten Commandments, it's a rule of life. 
And so, with the most superficial understanding of what the law of God requires, he went through all the motions of living a legal life. He kept the traditions of his fathers and his grandfathers before him. Um, He was one mighty, consistent Pharisee. Then God, God got to work in his life. And Saul discovered the most tremendous reality of all, something that most people never discover, and so they go to hell. Saul discovered that he was a sinner. It's a great discovery. I can't find sinners in Aberystwyth. The only people I can help are sinners. The only people Jesus came into the world to seek and save are sinners. And none in Aberystwyth. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, he did not, he could not find life by these feeble attempts at keeping the law of God. No one has ever discovered life, abundant life, by keeping the law of God. The law, in fact, showed Saul he needed life. He needed the life of heaven, the life of mercy, the life of forgiveness, the life of the pity of God, the life of the mercy of God. That was the life that he needed. The gift of God, that life. C.S. Lewis recalled when he went up to Oxford as a student, he was virtually as completely lacking in a moral conscience as any man in his late teens has ever been. That's how he saw himself. He felt no need of a saviour. Why should he be troubled that he didn't have a redeemer? He always lived a decent life. And so it was with him. And the spirit began to work on him. God met with him on a bus. You remember? Reading on a bus, traveling along. and That was the climax of it. The spirit sent by a merciful savior. A loving savior set at the right hand of God. Awakened in his heart an awareness of what his true state was. When he is come... Jesus says he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and he convicted C.S. Lewis like he convicted Saul of Tarsus and many, many of you that you are sinners and that you need a saviour. Now, Paul tells us he recognised that the commandment of God was intended to bring life That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It does have that intention. Thank God that the commandment is holy and and righteous and good. Uh, How does the law bring life if that's its intention? Well, it does so by restraining evil in Aberystwyth. 
Men don't constantly try to break into my home on the earth when I am in church on Sundays because they're conscience, conscious of a law that says you shall not steal. My daughters have been protected by the law. My grandchildren have been protected. They've met bullies and thieves on the streets of London that have taken their mobile phones and so on, but they haven't touched them with a knife. They've protected them. There were restraints on them, and it limited the dangers that they did. The things of the law are written on everybody's heart in Aberystwyth. It's my friend. When I'm preaching, there's a voice of the law of God in your heart that says the preacher's right, you know. What he's saying about us being sinners, yes, my heart tells me. I'm a sinner. So what the law does is this. The law chains the wolf. It curbs our sinful instincts. Men are held captive. They're restrained by the law. They're afraid to shoplift because they see the camera is there and there's a sign saying uh, that there's a CCTV system at work in this shop and if you're going to shoplift, you better watch out. They're afraid that there'll be a knock on the door and there'll be a policeman there and he wants to speak to you about something you stole from that shop. The law, it doesn't make people a new creation. The law of God doesn't save men, it doesn't regenerate, it doesn't uh, change them and sanctify them. It doesn't give them eternal life. But the shop owner's goods are protected. My wife, my children, my grandchildren are safer. My car is, my children's property in school is protected. The law encourages a happier life. And that was one reason why God gave it to Israel, gave it through Moses at uh, Sinai. But at the same time then, the law kills self-sufficiency and pride in a man's heart that hitherto he's been content to live without God's forgiveness. He's not content any longer. He knows he needs mercy. The law shows him he needs pardon and forgiveness from the living God. The fifth thing that this fascinating section tells us is that sin by the law deceives us and put us to death. Verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Sin is the great deceiver. It's the law that reveals the deceitfulness of sin. And that's the great message then that you must go away with tonight. Sin always deceives. Think of the Garden of Eden. And there you see at the very beginning the deception of sin. There are three ways in which sin deceives us. Firstly, it deceives us by promising what it can never deliver. Sin says, go for it. It'll be great. Sin says, go on. You'll enjoy it. Sin says, it can't be wrong, for it seems so right. Sin says, 
you feel more complete. You feel an all-round person. You feel mature. You'll, you'll feel fulfilled. Life will be better for you. you. You go ahead and take it. Go ahead and tell the lie. Go ahead and say the dirty word. Go ahead and jump into bed with that person. Go ahead and visit that website and look at those pictures. Go ahead. You need it. You've grown up now. You'll find happiness that way. We find that in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? With our first parents. What was it that the serpent said to Eve? Eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Sin deceives us by promising what it can never deliver. Secondly, sin deceives us by convincing us that what happened to others will never happen to us. Let's say that ten times out of ten people get caught when they sin. Can any hide himself in a secret place that I shall not see him? Says the Lord. Don't I fill the heavens and the earth? Says the Lord. Ten times out of ten we are caught. Red-handed by God. And yet when we stand on the precipice of sin we are convinced we are going to survive the fall. We are the exception. We know that for 2,000 years people who have done the very same thing have suffered for it. But sin says... Wait a minute now. Are you kidding me? You're going to be different. You're going to get away with this. As the serpent said to Eve, you won't die. What had God said? The day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And so here we have a contradiction. Here is A, and here is non-A. And there is no way that both of them can be right. One alone was right and one was wrong. Two choices, one or the other. The one who spoke first was the mighty creator of the heavens and the earth. Who in the beginning said, let there be light. And was light who spread the stars across the heavens. And made this beautiful world. Who had given Eve such a wonderful husband as Adam. He told them their mission was to replenish and subdue the earth and have dominion over every living thing. And they first heard the cultural mandate from this living God. They had no indwelling sin. They were living in the most beautiful environment imaginable. They had no bias whatsoever. So would they listen to God? Or would they listen to the snake? A talking snake. You think there's, there's no choice. If I had a group of children here and I described this to them and I said to the children, who do you think that they would, if they had no knowledge of the narrative of Genesis 3? Oh, they, they listen to God. They listen to the, this loving God who so blessed them in every way. She's bound to obey God. But sin is deceitful. And so Eve thinks for about 30 seconds. That's what the narrative seems to suggest. 30 seconds. And she does what the snake encourages her to do. She takes the forbidden fruit. Sin is that deceitful. 
And thirdly, sin deceives us by creating in us a desire to do what we know is going to hurt us and hurt our family and hurt the next generation. There's a little voice that says, go ahead. And we go ahead. We, we know we're going to suffer for it. Eve, look, Eve looked at the fruit. It was beautiful to see. It was wonderfully soft and, and, and firm to hold. It was delicious to taste. So she went ahead and she plucked it. And she ate it. She gave it to her husband, honey. She said, you've got to... You've got to have a bite of this. It's simply marvellous. And all the human race have been taking and eating forbidden fruit ever since, and you're included among them. We're no different, even though we know every time we take it and eat it, it's going to hurt us. Think of nicotine. The government couldn't make the perils of smoking Cigarettes. I couldn't make it more clear. The warnings that there are. Or drug taking. They, they, they couldn't make the warnings of drug taking. And yet, in their millions, people are taking drugs and drinking alcohol to excess. Do you think that those three mothers from Bradford who've taken their nine children away from their three husbands to the ISIS war zone in Syria, don't know the danger, that they are far more likely to be killed in Syria than they are walking the streets of Bradford. Of course they know it. But sin has created desire in them. Sin has done it. Do you think the student who went into that Bible class in the Methodist church in Charleston on Thursday didn't know that many people including himself were going to be hurt when he took the Colt revolver out of his bag and started to kill them the tons of pain were going to fall on him and the people he killed and their husbands and wives and children and, and parents and that he would spend the rest of his life forever and ever locked up Never to be freed again. But sin deceived him by creating in his heart a desire for what would only hurt. Hurt him and hurt them. Sin is a deceiver. And death follows them. Death follows deceit. Like that. Like night follows day. Sin always sends in the bill. Sin always pays the wages of sin, and that is death. So what of the law itself, then? Is Paul rather embarrassed by the law? And the last thing that he says is, uh, is not, don't preach it, don't mention the law, forget about the law, because of all that the law does. No, he says, uh, my sixth point, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 12. And the reasons for this you know so well, the things I've said, that the law protects mankind by reminding people how they should live. It's a restraint 
on, on, on cruel behavior. The law convicts people of their sin, and then it leads them to salvation in Jesus Christ. The law then tells us how, how we should live. That's why the Lord Jesus opened up the law of God. When he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, and he taught them the law of God, Matthew chapter 5. Didn't he? He taught them the inwardness of sin. What uh, thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not commit adultery, what it's all about. And that's where the last sections of the New Testament, after orthodoxy comes orthopraxis. And so Ephesians 5 and 6, and uh, the letter to James, and the last chapters of, of Colossae are telling us how we should live. It applies the law of God to our lives day by day. So the law is not bad. The Ten Commandments are reliable guidance for living. I rattle them off in my preaching, don't I? I know them by heart and I go through them well on my fingers with you. The Ten Commandments, I do it so often. I was preaching in a funeral service uh, last year and uh, some of us were there at the funeral service and I went through the Ten Commandments there and um, a godly lady came on to me afterwards. She said, oh, thank you. Thank you for going through the Ten Commandments. She never heard preachers telling people what the law of God is. What a deprivation for those congregations. The law is holy and righteous and good. It's like a window and he opens it like I've opened it to you many times and I've showed you the character of God. That God is light. It means that God is like these commandments. He loves them. He keeps them. That God is righteous. There's no cosmic malice in heaven that determines when, when our loved ones are taken from us. When uh, a, a, little, a little child is killed by a, 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 a terrier dog a few days old and the, the dog kills the child. We don't say, God is darkness. Say, oh, I should have locked the door. I should have kept the dog on a chain. What foolishness. Uh, I didn't know the dog could be that mean and that jealous. We don't blame God. We are responsible and God is sovereign. And that's how we live our lives, don't we? We take our responsibility only too well. I should have driven more carefully, we say. I should be more restrained in what I eat and what I drink and so on the law isn't bad, it's a, it's a reliable guide for our living. So it's a window that uh, shows us the character of God, but it's a mirror. And I hold up that mirror to you tonight, and you look at your life in, in the light of this mirror. You've heard the expression, a mirror doesn't lie. A mirror shows you how you are. How you're living. How it's been with you. What the past has been like up until now. A um, hundred years ago in Papua New Guinea, uh, a missionary showed a headhunter there uh, a mirror and he held it up and he looked at himself in the mirror and he was horrified at the sight it gave, the accuracy that it showed of that cruel face and all the the wickedness that that man had done and he threw it down and he stamped on it and he broke it 
with a stone. The problem wasn't with a mirror, was it? The problem was in him that his face reflected his heart and his life until that time. There's a person who's sick and he's not well and he's got pains and the doctor says, you better go and have an x-ray. And they get the x-ray and they show the picture and they show a dark patch there that he has cancer. A man doesn't get a hammer and smash the x-ray machine. It's not the fault of the x-ray machine. The machine didn't cause the cancer. It simply reveals what was there. The law of God shows us. How you've lived, how I lived, what we've done, that we are sinners. And God in his love has provided a saviour who wasn't like that. But he kept the law of God and loved the law of God and was righteous when God judged him. We're no longer hearing the word sin, I say. It's not a politically correct word because men have no effective standards to define what sin is. You make up your own mind and you do your own thing, they say. We've rejected the law of God. And so we have lost the concept of sin. Because situational ethics, they, they don't define what's right and wrong. They say, it's up to you. Give up the law. And you're going to lose sin. And you're going to lose family life. And morality is going to disintegrate. What's wrong with Wales today? Where many suggestions are made. But the fundamental answer is simple. What's wrong with Wales is us. We've gone wrong. We are a troubled nation because we have troubled hearts and memories and consciences. We've lost God. We've lost his word. We've lost sin. We've lost Christ the Savior. We've lost the gospel. We've lost heaven and we've lost hell. And they are huge losses. They're enormous when a civilization, a culture, loses all of that and replaces it with nothing. So here is Romans 7 and this passage that's been before you tonight. And it is saying to us, The law can't save you. Your morality can't save you. The great preacher, Daniel Rowland, he was just a normal, drifting minister who felt he ought to become a minister, not with any great calling to preach the gospel. And then as he had to go through his duties and had to study the Bible and the prayer book and so on, he... He got more and more serious about this God that he was serving. And so he started to thunder out the law of God. Week after week. The law of God. The Ten Commandments. Week after week the people came. And were shattered by what they heard. He had a friend who was a nonconformist preacher. His name was Philip Pugh. And Philip Pugh could see what was going on. And he said to him, Preach the gospel to the people. Dear sir, Apply the balm of Gilead, the the blood of Christ, 
to their spiritual wounds, show them the necessity of faith in a crucified Savior. Do that. Give that message. And Roland thought for a moment, and he said quietly, I'm afraid I don't have that faith myself. And Pew said to him, then preach it until you've got it. And no doubt it will come. But if you go on preaching the law in this matter, in this manner, you'll kill half the people in Keredigion. For you thunder and curse the law and you preach it in such a terrific manner. No one can stand before you. That's what he told him. And of course, uh, that wonderful change took place. And Roland uh, was transformed. He preached grace and mercy to troubled sinners. That's the gospel. No one was ever saved by hearing and keeping the Ten Commandments. No one ever will. There isn't a single person. Go to every religion, any part of the world. No one keeps their own standards. And secondly, we should preach the law to the proud and, and, and grace to the humble. Law to the proud and grace to the humble. And so often you find preachers that are not doing this. They're doing the very reverse. They're preaching the law on Sundays to godly old women and righteous teenagers and earnest men and women who who want to please God. And all they're hearing is, be good, do good, keep the law. And they need to hear of the grace of God that brings salvation. But lifts us up and pardons us and and forgives us of our sins. Francis Schaeffer said this, if I was traveling on a train for an hour with a man and he never went to church and he had no idea what Christianity taught. If I had an hour to share Christ with him, do you know how I would use the time? I'd spend 45 minutes of that journey Showing him his conduct in the light of the high standards of God's law. I'd show him that there was a holy God against whom he'd sinned. And how his life falls short of the standards of God. And once I had convicted him of this. Then for 15 minutes I would tell him of the mercy and the love and the kindness of God that he's loved the world and he sent his son into the world to be the Lamb of God that in our place bears our judgment and the wrath of a sin-hating God with us then can have nothing to do because our Savior's obedience and blood hides all our transgressions from him. That's what I would do, he says. The law of God is intended to humble the proud and the gospel of God is intended to give grace to the humbled and finally the law reveals our sinful condition to lead us to Christ it's our schoolmaster it says now let me tell you what you really like will you listen will you listen that's what the law is saying do you know what I want I want you to love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's what I require from you. 
That's the standard by which I'll judge you. I want you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I want you to do to others as you would have them do to you. Exactly. That's the standard. And when we see that that's the standard then. Men and women, we are broken. We are convicted. We know we can never be saved. We can never pass entry into glory, into heaven. By keeping the law of God. We lost men and women. And so, oh, we're so glad to hear our Savior says, come to me. Come then, come. You labor and you're heavy laden, you come to me. And I'll give you rest. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you mercy. I'll give you a new heart. I'll write the things of the law on the heart. I'll give you a new desire to please me. And I'll give you the energy of God, the Holy Spirit, to live a new life, a different life. God does. Every Christian here says, yes, that's what's happened to me. Oh Lord, bless your word to us tonight then. And grant that all of us here shall be taught by the schoolmaster, the Lord, to run to Jesus Christ for mercy and forgiveness and find it in him alone. Oh Lord, help us not to kick against the law of God, but to Bend and bow before it in thy presence. Oh, grant that. Gracious God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.